Millennium Global's Q2 Macro Outlook, a podcast series where we discuss our global currency and macroeconomic highlights looking into the next quarter of the year. I'm Eve Danbury, a junior portfolio manager on the discretionary investment team here at Millennium Global. And I'm joined today by Pia Sashdeva, our lead economist and strategist, and Sandra Rumer, economist and strategist in the team. Afternoon, both. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Eve. Hi, you. So I think we can all agree it's been quite the start of the year. Um, we came into this quarter, I think, on the page that the world was starting to look a bit more stable. China was reopening at what appeared to be a relatively fast pace. The Fed in the US was on track to cautiously slow the pace of tightening after nearly a year of, of aggressive rate rises. Um, and Europe was was set to benefit from the significant unwind in European gas prices back to levels that we haven't seen since pre-Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So as much as some of that did occur, it was not straightforward. Um, markets were whipsawed by dynamic changes to the US policy outlook from dovish to hawkish to dovish. Um, and then, of course, the unforeseen shock to the US um, and the global banking system that was initially sparked by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the subsequent bank run that happened on the back of that, and the flight of deposits from several US regional banks, which in the end resulted in the US government and the Fed stepping in to ensure deposits for a large amount of investors. So moving on, banking system stress aside, for the US economy, broadly the first half of this quarter, uh, the economy has been pretty resilient. Um, core inflation has remained sticky and the labour market in particular continues to remain tight um, and continuous, and a continuous pressure on inflation for the time being. So Pia, how do you think the next quarter plays out for the US? And what do you think about the Fed's reaction function? in terms of going forward, given the likely credit tightening that is now taking place post this initial banking liquidity crisis? Yes, I think the Fed are likely going to have to respond to two things now going forward. The first is the momentum around growth coming into the first quarter. I think what's becoming clearer is that momentum is, is not proving sustained. Uh, so that's the first point. And the second is that they're confronting a growth shock, um, but one that's likely to be contained at this stage. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is, you know, as you said, the Fed have, have moved quite quickly to provide liquidity to the banking sector, but also that we don't expect further bank runs. That when we look at the fundamentals of US regional banks, Funding positions remain quite healthy. Capital positions are relatively sound. The level of de deposits that are insured um, are higher than, than SBB. Um, and finally, we don't expect tightening credit conditions from, from large banks. So for the Fed, it's that momentum and the growth shock that they're having to deal with. Um, in terms of what we expect, we expect then US growth to slow but for the US to avoid a recession in the near term. Um, why? I think I'll point to the labour market dynamic that is still very strong. And ultimately, that broadly underpins the consumer from an income point of view. Uh, and then I think the labour market here, again, is super crucial because it's the labour market softness that is also key to the inflation dynamic. 
Because when we look at what's driving core inflation now, a, a large share of that is um, this, this service excluding housing inflation, um, which is often highly correlated to uh, labor market dynamics and in particular wage growth. Um, but then we th- when we think about the labor market, the medium term growth outlook is really the best indicator for um, how the labor market evolves going forward. So, you know, given our growth outlook, we'll become a bit more comfortable that that labor market softening is likely to come through. Um, I'm going to say a couple of words on the reaction function for the Fed. So, you know, they're reacting to a U.S. growth shock. But also, I think importantly, this raises the question of the sustainability of the business model of smaller banks when new regulation comes in. But that's important because the Fed are then not only confronting a cyclical shock, but potentially a structural one because you know, roughly half of US commercial industrial lending comes from these smaller banks. And that raises a scenario where there's a longer term structural disinflationary drag for the US. Um, so it's a bit more nuanced than saying that this is a, just a cyclical phenomenon. And then, of course, it raises uncertainty, but also uncertainty about the lags of monetary policy, exactly how much tightening is in the system. Uh, and I think finally stepping back, the Fed, is, the Fed is, has been confronted with a bit of a taste of the damage that it could cause by trying to aggressively get inflation down to 2% quickly. So we actually think we'll likely see a higher tolerance for inflation um, and that you know, might be the level of inflation. So they might be a bit more comfortable with inflation around two and a half to 3%. But I think what's more likely is that they have the higher tolerance for inflation in terms of the time that it takes for inflation to get back down to, to 2%. So importantly, we see this as a growth shock, you know, albeit endogenous, not exogenous, and a Fed reaction function shock as well. Uh, net, net. Well, we see the Fed is one more one more hike from here, and then they can pause the rate hiking cycle. Thanks, Piers. Uh, I think we can agree on the surface this does look to be quite a US centric um, banking problem. So, Sandra, on that, moving on to Europe. Um, first of all, do you foresee any further spillovers into the European banking sector um, from what has happened in the US? And then from that, what's what's your base case for the ECB from here, um, given core inflation at the moment is still proving to remain sticky um, in the near term? Uh, thank you, Eve. So on Europe more specifically, we have, I would say, multiple factors playing out. So, of course, the recent banking crisis in the US and also in Switzerland in the form of credit suites being taken over by UBS has definitely increased systemic risk and systemic stress in the euro area. And we've seen also um, banks' stocks uh, plunging to very low levels. Um, so there was definitely some nervousness in the market about a potential contagion to the whole European banking sector and ultimately as well a banking crisis. But I would say and stress the fact that the banking sector in Europe, so both in the Eurozone and in the UK, is much more regulated than it used to be after the global financial crisis but also much more regulated and resilient than in the US. So we do think that stress should reduce. And we also have, we've started to see stress reducing um, and we expect this to continue. And we also think that fears of contagion should dissipate uh, further going forward. Um, Now, 
this will allow the ECB to keep hiking. Um, we, we, we think that they will keep hiking and they need to, be, to keep hiking uh, precisely because of what you just said about inflation, especially on the core. Uh, good, core inflation is expected to remain quite sticky. So while we have headline inflation coming down quite quickly because of energy inflation being lower now and base effects that are very powerful one year after the start of the war in Ukraine, we have two factors that will limit the fall in, in headline inflation. The first is food inflation um, that is still very high and we expect food inflation to keep increasing. Um, and the second is on the, as I mentioned, core inflation that is stickier than what we initially thought and also probably stickier for longer. Um, if we look at the details, core goods inflation has yet to pick. Uh, we might have actually uh, reached a peak in March, but we would need more data prints in order to get the confirmation for that. And uh, most importantly, the core services side is still is still increasing. Uh, we still expect core services to increase because um, that sector is still adapting to past um, past increases in, in prices. And also we expect some um, some contribution as well from wage growth. Uh, that is expected to to reach five percent uh, this year, 2023, before dissipating in 2024. So, as I mentioned earlier, we definitely expect more rate hikes from the ECB. But I would also say that the rate hikes will be more cautious. Uh, we think that they will keep hiking at a slower pace, so reducing the pace from 50 basis point hikes to 25 basis point hikes. Um, that's first to better calibrate price and financial stability. And also they would want to pay more attention to the lags of monetary policy that they've already, the, the lags of the tightening of monetary policy that they've already done, and also pay more attention to monetary policy transmission, which in the Eurozone is really um, just paying more attention to financial conditions, basically. Um, and we expect financial conditions to, to, to keep tightening. Uh, first, as a result, of rate hikes, and that will be the main driver of um, tightening in financial conditions. And we also expect some further tightening uh, because of the banking stress, although this is not going to be enough to replace any action uh, from the ECB. Thank you both um, for those broader macro thoughts. As always, um, translating this into currency views is, is never easy but let's get into it. So the dollar, um, on the investment side, we have maintained our, our dollar short um, view based on our view that US yields have peaked and that the Fed are prized to end their hiking cycle this quarter. But from a macro standpoint, Pia, what's your view on the dollar into the second quarter of this year? Yeah, we're quite consistent with those views. I mean, we continue to have a negative view on the dollar. Uh, that's the same view that we had last quarter. I think it's worth like just starting with why we thought that in the first place. Um, I mean, we thought softer inflation in the US would see a forward-looking Fed broadly navigate the end of its hiking cycle. Meanwhile, the ECB would play catch up and the Bank of England, sorry, um, Bank of Japan rather, would gear up to exit uh, yield curve control. So that was a story of interest rate convergence. And really the banking stress in the US ultimately reinforces our view. 
We see credit tightening in the US accelerating the Fed's tightening cycle, both by hurting growth and also reminding the Fed that there are lags to monetary policy. Um, so that leaves our broader view on the dollar unchanged. Um, you know, firstly, that is the interest rate convergence view. I think secondly, we acknowledge that the terms of trade shock is receding and actually proving to um, to help European growth, both in the, the UK and the euro area, which is helping that interest rate convergence between US and Europe. Um, we think that sentiment is likely to improve because of inflation softening and also China reopening, which means that you know, that should prove to be a positive impetus for the rest of the world growth. And therefore, even if US and growth is softening and heading into maybe recessionary territory, we should avoid a safe haven bid for the dollar. And then finally, that's all in the context of the dollar that is still significantly overvalued, um, particularly on a DXY basis. So really, the banking stress ultimately reinforces our view here. Thanks, Pierre. And Sandra, as you mentioned earlier, Europe, in contrast, appears much more resilient to the banking stress that we've seen in the US. So just taking this into account um, and also the likelihood inflation probably remains problematic for the ECB in the near term, how are you thinking about the euro here over the next quarter? So as I mentioned earlier, we're definitely seeing a more hawkish uh, ECB relative to, to the Fed going forward. That's because of uh, the banking situation being having normalized somehow, and also core inflation that is um, expected to remain uh, stickier uh, in the next few months. I would also add two things. Uh, the first is that growth will remain weak, but the recession scenario is completely out of the table at this stage. So the ECB is not going to be helped by, by weaker growth in its fight against inflation. Um, and I would also add the second uh, thing is that gas prices have remained contained um, recently. We, we expect gas prices to increase uh, going forward and entering into the summer as Europe is going to start refilling its gas storage. But the price increases are not going to be anywhere near what we've seen last summer. And that should help uh, in improving the current account. So in the, in the near term, we see a more hawkish um, ECB relative to the Fed, uh, weak growth um, or weaker growth, but no recession and an improving current account. And all these three factors should, uh, should be supportive for the Euro against the dollar. So we're positive, we have a positive view on the euro um, against the dollar. Thanks, Sandra. Um, so just sticking with G3, Pia, Japan, it's an interesting story in its own right. Um, we've had a, a new BOJ governor and the balance of risks is shifting more to a move from the BOJ in terms of removing yield curve control, but also arguably it's a view on, on US rates from here and global risks um, more broadly, post the banking concerns. So how are you thinking about the yen from here? So I think ultimately we see the yen is still a call on 10-year interest rate differentials between the US and Japan. And as you alluded to, for a long time, this meant that we only really considered the US part of the equation. And now the Japanese side is becoming a lot more interesting. Um, the banking stress in the US 
you know, what that means is that it effectively removes a nasty tail for the yen, where the Fed was planning on accelerating its hiking cycle. And therefore, there was a scenario where US rates actually have to move a lot higher. Um, so that with that tail being removed, it it brings a, a lot of a nicer distribution to the to the yen going forward from a US rates point of view, where you know, if the US economy reaches the end of the cycle, US rate, rates are still likely to, to move lower. Um, and then on the flip side, on the Japanese side, the Bank of Japan eyeing a normalization in in policy. And for the for our BAJ views, um, yeah, we've been saying for a few months now that we think the conditions have now been met for an exit on the curve control from an inflation point of view. When we monitor inflation fundamentals like service inflation, wages, uh, inflation expectations, and so on, and also that the side effects of ultra accommodative policy from the BOJ is still broadly there. Um, so measures of JGB market functioning, for example, are still quite poor. Uh, and of course, on our valuation measures, the yen is still still really cheap. So you know, we, we think that the yen is good risk reward at this stage because of the distribution of outcomes. And you know, really, if the US is going into recession, you have interest rate convergence from a US point of view. And if it isn't, then we're likely to see the Bank of Japan move. And so we get the Japan leg. It becomes a bit more interesting. Thanks, Pierre. Yeah, I think it, it still amazes me that we are speaking about uh, the yen possibly benefiting from higher domestic yields. Um, but this is the world that we're moving into. Um, so just stepping back to the euro area, um, heading to arguably a more pro-risk, uh, pro-cyclical currency, sterling, um, the Bank of England may still have one more hike in them. Um, I mean, I'm not sure what your thoughts are, but how are you thinking about the UK and sterling from here? So, I mean, in terms of sterling, it's a similar view to the euro. Um, we see the sterling as being another beneficiary of dollar weakness. I think in the near term, because it is pro-cyclical, um, if equities were able to digest banking stress a bit better, then sterling could, could benefit a bit more. Um, it is also undervalued, but we don't see um, euro sterling as providing a valuation opportunity right now. Um, and similarly to the eurozone, the fall in European natural gas prices is improving the current account and growth outlook in the UK. And um, that growth outlook is important for the rate axis, I think, because accelerating growth in the UK in the context of sticky inflation and still a too tight labour market. I think ultimately points the balance of risk to to one more hike in May. So you know, we do think the market is slightly too optimistic on the Bank of England's rate hiking cycle, though we have had that view for some time. Um, but we think that rate support is likely to still be there in the short term. Um, and really, it's because of the growth momentum in the UK that I think I think the Bank of England they need a bit more certainty that wage growth is softening. Um, and so I think balance of risk that they actually do one more hike, which just leaves that sterling with rate support in the short term. So similar view to euro, I think we have on sterling. Thanks, Pierre. And then just quickly, before we move on to more risk correlated FX, the Swiss franc, again, quite similar to the yen, um, in a sense that perhaps it can be taken as a view on US rates from here. 
um, but also now potentially benefiting from a more hawkish approach from the central bank, the SMB. What are your thoughts on the Swiss franc from here? I think you're right in the you know, those two features of the Swiss franc, I think, are really important from here. Um, firstly, our views on US interest rates. Uh, clearly support exposure to currency pairs that are exposed to US duration, like the yen and Swiss franc. I think importantly, you know, to distinguish the Swiss franc from the yen, it's a bit more risk agnostic to why yields are going down um, or the broader risk backdrop. So, you know, again, in the short term, equities have been quite resilient um, in pricing growth outcomes after US banking stress. And that's in the end broadly sort of underperform, you know, albeit in the in the short term. Um, but, but the Swiss franc tends to be a lot more resilient in that scenario. Uh, and then on the Swiss side, sort of on the domestic side, I think you're right, um, in the strong Swiss inflation, which, again, has been a surprise, along with broader European inflation, not only keeps the S&B hiking, so we don't really have too much uh, interest rate divergence between the ECB and SMB. But because some of that inflation is still external, the SMB want to avoid a weak, a weak currency. And they, they said that quite explicitly in the last statement. So, you know, it's always helpful from an FX point of view if you have a central bank that's a bit more on your side. And that helps keep the risk reward for the Swiss bank asymmetric. So similar views to, to the yen here but a little bit more explicit help from the SMB around parity for Eurosquares. Thanks, Peter. So moving on to risk currencies, the classic of those, and in the past, probably the most correlated to global equities. Sandra, what are your thoughts on Australia and the RBA and consequently the Aussie dollar from here? So the Australian dollar uh, remains really correlated to equities and our top-down view suggests that equity risks should be supportive in the near term. Um, in addition, if we just look at uh, domestic factors, uh, the RBA has posed its hiking cycle in April, uh, first because growth has significantly slowed in Q4 2022, and second because inflation has probably peaked in, in the last quarter of last year. Uh, at least that's what um, the, the monthly indicators that we got since the beginning of this year suggest. So in that context, the RBA has posed its hiking cycle, but they kept the door open for another hike. And we still have, I would say, an auction bias to the RBA, as we believe upside risks remain uh, to inflation, both domestically, but also uh, related to the reopening of China. So we do think that there is potential uh, potential risk that the RBA has to hike again in uh, in May, and that's that's uh, a more hawkish view compared to the, to what the market has. We have overall a positive view on the currency versus the um, the US dollar. Thanks, Sandra. So I think we can agree that perhaps there's some potential upsides for the RBA from here. Moving on to somewhere where rates are likely to remain on hold for the foreseeable Canada. Um, how are you thinking about commodities and, and oil prices broadly? Um, and how does that feed into your more neutral view on the Canadian dollar? So definitely the contained level of commodity prices um, 
commodity prices being the main driver of the Canadian dollar, uh, should remain unsupportive of, of, of the currency. And also, again, going back to domestic factors, uh, we have a weaker growth in, in Canada and we exp expect the economy to slow down further. And uh, we also uh, seen inflation picking and the disinflationary process is really ongoing at this stage. So we don't see potential risks of the BOC having to hike again, uh, which is in line with also the market pricing. So we see the BOC on hold uh, this quarter as the data should come in line with their uh, with their projection. And that's one of the conditions they have uh, shared in terms of uh, their conditional pose. So we see overall, we see no domestic nor global support for the currency. And that leaves us neutral, uh, the Canadian dollar in the short term versus the US dollar. Thanks, Sandra. Thank you both um, for your observations on developed markets. Just Stepping briefly into emerging markets, um, I mean, I think we can all say we've been surprised at the higher yielders and, and how resilient they've been given the global backdrop and the uncertainties in the US banking sector. Um, obviously, carry, particularly for the LATAM currencies, remains favourable. Um, but is there anything else we should be thinking about um, with specifics to Brazil? Sandra, over to you. If we look at purely like domestic factors, you could think that the BOC would probably start cutting soon because, first of all, we have a very restrictive monetary policy and a fall in commodity prices that have driven a disinflationary process since months now. We also have the economy that has contracted in Q4 2022 and we expect the economy to remain weak. However, uh, despite these developments, the, B the BCB has remained quite, um, quite awkish, actually. And that's because inflation expectations have overshot recently in, in responding to the fiscal turmoil that uh, is ongoing since December. And that added to pressures on, on the BCB to keep rates unchanged at 13.75%. So... We, we see that the fiscal uncertainty since, since December has decreased, um, but it still remains quite high given that we're still waiting for more details on the new fiscal framework. And we're also still waiting to see the impact of this new fiscal framework on inflation expectations. So we expect the BCB to remain focused on really two things. The first thing is to remain focused on elevated core inflation, despite the disinflation, core inflation remains well above the target. And the second thing is uh, unanchored inflation expectations. So the BCB will need to see an inflation expectations coming back to the target in order to, to, to start uh, cutting the selling rate. So at this stage, we have basically high carry that should um, keep supporting the currency and less fiscal turmoil relative to what we had uh, in December and early this year that should also be supportive for the Brazilian real. Uh, so we all we, we take a positive view on, on, on the currency versus the dollar. Thanks, Sandra. Um, and then finally, I mean, what was one of the bigger themes heading into this year? And you can probably host an entire podcast on this topic itself, um, China. 
Pia, reopening is well underway, but at the same time, the PBOC seems happy to maintain an easing bias here and now. So just keen to know your thoughts. I mean, ultimately, do you think there's limited upside for the currency from the reopening, given the current account dynamics um, and also the lack of spillover that we've seen in, in regional exports? What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think the lack of spillover is important from a dollar axis point of view. Um, so, you know, clearly you can't take a view on EM without taking a view on sort of broad, broader dollar dynamics and, and US rates. I think the domestic nature of the rebound in China in some ways is a necessary condition for the currency itself to do well via a weaker dollar axis. So namely the, the lack of spillovers to commodity prices all else equal, provides a more benign environment for inflation. Um, and the reopening boost also helps to reduce the probability of a global recession as well. So I think those two factors in particular um, help provide that sort of necessary condition for um, the renminbi to strengthen. But then having said that, when you look at the domestic drivers, this is not very interesting. <laughs> So, you know, and that's why I say it's a necessary condition not and not a sufficient condition for the currency to do well. Um, why? I think it's difficult to see this domestic growth, uh, even though it's tracking, tracking very strongly between sort of 8%, 10% in the first quarter to translate into inflation and therefore an interest rate hikes from the PVOC. Um, I think there's a few reasons for that. So... You know, firstly, the recovery in China is not stimulated by policy per se, particularly on the fiscal side. Um, secondly, there is more evidence of slack in the labor market, which makes you less concerned about wage growth in China. Um, and then finally, the backdrop of commodity prices is just quite different. So when developed markets were opening, it was also accompanied by a commodity price shock. And also supply chain shock that you know somewhat reflected the fact that China was closed uh, or locked down, whereas China isn't experiencing that broader commodity price um, backdrop. So for those reasons, inflation in China is likely to be quite well behaved and is also starting from very low levels. And then from a central bank reaction uh, function point of view part of the domestic drivers of growth, you know, not only is this a services consumption related recovery, but it's also less of a drag from the property sector. And from a, again, from a PBOC point of view, that provides quite a higher hurdle for them to be hawkish in an environment where they want to support the property sector, which you know, is clearly interest rate sensitive. Um, so from that point of view, it's difficult to translate a positive view on domestic growth in China to one of interest rate convergence with the US, where um, you know, CNH is still negative carry because of their level of yields in China. Um, and you, you, you touched on the current account dynamics as well. I think that is also important, that weaker export growth in China combined with slightly stronger import growth as China reopens, as well as tourism outflows should erode the current account, which was a big support last year for the currency. So from an FX point of view, we think it's difficult to translate the China reopening into domestic currency gains and actually something like Aussie 
Uh, the Aussie dollar, I mean, Sandra spoke about the domestic drivers there, um, which just provides a bit more risk reward, I think, from a China point of view rather than the China axis itself. Thanks, Pierre. Well, thank you both for today. Um, it's it's great to take a step back and think about the broader macro picture, where we've come from, and ultimately what's changed in terms of the reaction function for central banks now that we are nearing the end of what has been a pretty aggressive global tightening cycle. Um, as ever, where there's absolute differentiation in rates and elevated volatility, um, there's opportunity in FX. And I think the next quarter certainly looks to be dynamic for us uh, on the discretionary team. So I think I can speak on behalf of all of us in saying that we will be keeping a close eye on the global banking system, monitoring for particular points of stress, uh, watching the deposit data in the US for signs of increased usage, um, and in general, just keeping abreast of the situation uh, and potential de development. So if you do have any questions about any of that or any of the topics that we've touched on today, then please feel free to reach out to us or the marketing team. And thank you once again for tuning into this Q2 Macro Outlook podcast with Millennium Global. And we will see you next quarter with more macro and currency news. Thank you.